Hey, we're in our second week of a new series, Criticizing Jesus. Last week, um, if you will recall, if you weren't here, you, I know you uh, got online and watched it, so I'm confident that you're going to recall this. Jesus was criticized for caring for and spending too much time with lawbreakers, right, instead of spending time with the law keepers. But from Jesus' perspective, law keepers were abusing the law, right? They were using it to beat people up and to actually keep people from God's presence rather than using it to show that God actually loves them dearly and then shows them how to enter into God's presence. But the Pharisees weren't using the law for that purpose, right? They were using it as a barrier. And I presented a concluding thought to ponder, kind of a self-evaluation. I'm going to throw it up here again. Which upsets you more, a church that seems to coddle sinners or a church that doesn't seem to extend enough mercy, grace, and forgiveness to sinners, right? Basically, which upsets you more, a church that's too conservative or a church that's too liberal, too permissive or too restrictive? To put it bluntly for this question, and and I don't want to insult anybody, but this is, again, self-evaluation. Don't raise your hand. You don't even need to tell your spouse. To put it bluntly, are you more like the Pharisees or are you more like Jesus? And this is one of those questions that will kind of help you decide where, where you're standing, right? And I say the word more, which upsets you more, because both of these things can be upsetting, right? Neither one of them is necessarily right, but both of them in, it, in their extremes, they're, they're wrong. Churches can be too permissive, ignoring sin altogether, and they can be too restrictive, right? Nobody can meet the standard, but my question for you is, which one of these two really chaps your hide, really, really gets your blood up, right? One of them is gonna, you're going to have an emotional response to. Now, I'm going to ask you the same question, but from a different angle. Hit that next slide there. Which upsets you more, a church without organs, altars, pulpits, and a proper high church liturgy? Or a church without lots of broken people making poor lifestyle choices and always in need of food and shelter? And again, I say more because both of these can be upsetting, But which one would force you to reconsider even supporting and attending a church that didn't or did do one of these kind of things? Now, I'm guessing, and I did this deliberately. You need to forgive me. I I wasn't trying to yank your chains. I deliberately chose some buzzwords here. Um, Because I I I wanted to force you to be honest with yourself. And again, I'm I'm guessing, right? I was going to say I know, but I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm assuming, I'm guessing that there's a lot of defensive thinking going on right now. Whoever's hearing me, you've landed on one side of those two questions and you're a little little bit of that going on, right? A little bit of rationalizing, um, maybe some internal spiritual posturing. Well, this is the holy move and this, that's not, not holy, right? And the words equality and honor might not have come to mind, but my guess is that many of you were thinking in terms of, or in, in similar terms, of equality and honor. For example, when it comes to a church's worship service, y'all, you, you know this, and you have this opinion if you're honest, right? Some practices in churches, some rituals, right, they, they, they just seem to honor God, right? And some practices, some rituals, they seem to be incredibly dishonoring, right? You just have this visceral, this, this feeling, right? But here's the crazy thing. Those same practices from a different perspective, from a different station in life, those exact same practices could be incredibly dishonoring and even self-serving if you're from a different perspective, a different station in life. 
Right, so we all have these, and, and again, if you travel around the world, you're going to see some crazy different worship styles, but we're so, we don't experience all that, so we, we kind of arrive, like I said last week, we arrive at these, these things that we do, they become somehow holy when they're just cultural expressions of our faith, right? And, and another culture over, one row over, they would think, what in the world are you doing? That makes no sense. And they do something, and we're looking at them going, what? Right, but, be, but both of them... The, the, they're speaking through their culture. God is speaking through their culture, and, and there's a connection. There's a connection there. And again, same thing with, with the church's ministry and money. For one crowd, equality means a strong charity program, right? Lots of redistributing of the wealth because nobody should have when somebody else doesn't have, right? But for others, equality dictates that nobody should get for free what they had to work really hard for. Those are, those are real opinions, and on top of all that, let's just be honest, there's no real honor in being equal. According to the world, honor is given to those with more than equal, more than the rest of us. We, we tend to honor, right, those people. Nobody wants to be at the very least less than equal, right? I think that's a fair statement. And at the same time, everybody wants to be at the very least just, just a little bit more than somebody else, you know, a little bit more then equal, one has honor and one simply doesn't have a whole lot of honor attached to it. Now, in chapter 5 of John, we're going to be looking at that this morning. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to dig into that. I'm not going to be bouncing around a whole lot, so it'll be worth your while. And in chapter 5 of John, he takes these ideas of equality and, the honor, and, and honor and he just turns them upside down. Just, that, that's what he does. And in doing so, he provides us a model, kind of a pattern as to how we need to be dealing with these words of quality and honor because they do have a big role in our culture, right? Everybody, everybody wants equality. Everybody wants to be honored. But those two, they don't jive very well. Spoiler alert, it's not going to be, you know, the way Jesus uses these terms. It's not going to be the way the world uses these terms and maybe the way you're used to using these terms so we're going to jump right in and see how Jesus handles these words and these ideas. I'm going to start in chapter 5 of John, verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now that all sounds pretty straightforward, but as with lots of John's writings, there's like multiple layers, like an onion, right? You, you kind of got to peel back the layers of the onion to get, to get really what's going on there. And one of the more popular hidden meanings in this passage is that those five colonnades represent the five books of the Torah, right? The first five books of the Bible. And according to early New Testament era thinkers... The following is really a commentary on the effectiveness of those first five, the law, right? It says this in, in 5 verse 3, it says, Here's a great, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So you have this picture of these blind, lame, and paralyzed people under the law. And it, it's a commentary, right? The law doesn't heal you, right? The law points to how you can be healed, but the law can't heal you. Take it or leave it, right? There it is. Um, I continue. Uh, now, and if you'll notice on this slide, I've, I've put the verse numbers. And if you look in your Bibles, you'll notice that many of your translations, they're missing a verse, right? They're missing verse 4. And, and this is very touchy with people. 
there are approximately 25,000 extant manuscripts of the new, extant, existing, none, none of the originals, but copies of the originals, about 25,000 manuscripts of either the whole thing or parts of it, certain books, so forth. And here's what they found, like, right, right here is today and right back here, right, is, is where everything first happened. And, and what we find is as we, as we find older and older documents, older and older manuscripts, we find that there's a whole lot of agreement early on, but as time goes by, editors, scribes, they would add in things, not to change anything, but to clarify what might not be clear to a reader 100 years later, but would have been perfectly clear to the original hearers. And we have a situation here just like this, where a scribe, and again, this is according to an overwhelming number of Bible scholars and theologians, that this verse, verse 4, was added later to explain something that you're going to read about in just a moment about this pool, right? So uh, let me continue. Uh, one who was there had been an invalid or a sick man in the original language, and that's going to be important here, a sick man for 38 years. And again, people kind of read multiple layers of the onion. 38 years, close enough to 40 years. This is, people have tried to make this. Many theologians, Bible scholars over the years have made this little passage here to represent the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, right? Two ways that were fruitless, wandering in the wilderness and sitting under the law expecting it to save you. New Testament writers, right? Now, here's verse 4. I'm going to throw it in, just, and then you'll see that it is actually explained later on, but not fully. Verse 4 says, And they waited for the moving of the waters. This was a superstition, okay? From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Now, I'm going to jump back, right? We read verse 5, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, a lot of your versions, the NIV has get well, but in the original language, it makes it a whole lot clearer that this wasn't just going to happen somehow eventually, right? The, the, what Jesus says literally is, I can make you well. You, it's not that you will get well. Start attending church more often, start reading your Bible, start, you'll get well. No, Jesus is saying, I will make you well. I will make you well. And the man answers Jesus. He said, sir, the invalid replied, again, the sick man, keep that in your mind. Sir, the sick man replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. Right now, if you hadn't have read the added verse 4, that wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense. When the water stirred, what, what, what's going on there? So, you know, the scribe added that verse 4 to help us understand. Verse 7. Now, notice something here. The sick man doesn't actually answer Jesus because, like the NIV translators, the man didn't hear that Jesus said that Jesus himself would make him well. You ever... We all do this. We, somebody is talking, and we've already decided what they're going to say. And it kind of, when they actually don't say that, it, wait a minute. I, you know, we hear them talk, but we actually hear something else because we're so dead set on hearing something else that they'll say A and we hear B. This is what's going on right here, right? Jesus says A, I will make you well. And the man hears B, I'll help you. I'll, I'll, I'll 
I'll throw you into the water, right? Um, According to this man's experience, to get well meant that Jesus had to get him into that pool ahead of everybody else. That's, according to his experience, that's what Jesus must be referring to. He's going to help me get in the pool. He's not going to make me well. He's just going to help things along. So you can imagine the shock, right, in the sense of, right, you got to be kidding me. When Jesus tells the man to pick up his mat and get moving, right, Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. And, of course, the law keepers once again used the law to turn beauty back into ashes. Because as we now find out, this was all happening on the Sabbath. Everybody gets upset when you do things on the Sabbath. Verse 9 and 10, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and the law forbids you to carry your mat. And the law did. The law forbidded a man to carry a load, or anybody to carry a load, and, that, and that's the word that they were using, this, the, the load, right? But again, the, the law, according to Jesus and according to other interpreters of Jesus' day, um, Only up to a point, right? Only up to a point were you not allowed to carry a load on Sunday. And as we learned last week, this point is where, according to Jesus, where our important rituals and our rules get in the way of even more important mercy and grace and forgiveness and inclusiveness, right? But the Pharisees, they were far more concerned with the ritual and the rule, and they focused all their attention on the legal question rather than marveling at the healing that they had just witnessed by a life giver, the life giver. So the leaders are really, they're, 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 they're appealing to legal precedent. Both Jeremiah and Nehemiah had said you can't carry loads. But in both of those, if you look in the context, it's not your bed. It, the load was always a commercial load of which you were going to make money. People were coming into the temple precincts on Sunday, and they were trying to make money, right? And that was interfering with prayer and worship, right? And Jesus knows his scripture, and he's going to call their bluff, right? He's totally going to call their bluff, right? Um, But first, the sick man's reply, right? 11 and 12, verses 11 and 12. The man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk, like a rabbi. I'm pretty sure he didn't know who he is, but he's just like, I'm not doing this on my own accord, right? Getting all defensive. So they asked him, who's this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? Now, I want you to watch this. The once sick man, I, I kind of made a big deal about this because in our translations, we lose a little bit. The once sick man at this point gets a new name. John gives him a new name by way of Jesus, right? So the, the sick man is talking, and suddenly, again, in the original language, it's no longer the sick man, it's the healed man. And from here on in, the sick man is never mentioned again. It's always the healed. It's like his whole identity gets changed. The healed man had no idea who it was for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd, right? Big festival crowd, easy to understand. But Jesus isn't satisfied with simply making the man physically well now, right? Now. And this is super important to catch, because Jesus is going to allude to this in just a little bit. Jesus knew that the man's spiritual condition had to be addressed if that man wanted to enjoy his newfound physical life both now and forever. Something had to be addressed. A spiritual condition had to be addressed now or eventually he's going to die and 
right? Nothing, he's not going to be walking anywhere, right? And Jesus, Jesus knew this, right? He made him well now, but Jesus had the power to make, keep him well forever. So Jesus tracks the healed man down at the temple, which is a good thing, right? In that day, if you were healed of something, the first thing you were told to do is go to the priest's confirm, make sure everything is, is in fact as it's said, and, and a man who had been not allowed in the temple because of his imperfections is now allowed in a place where he had never been allowed before. He, I don't know if he ran there. I, mean, he, I think he was pretty excited. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, th this struck me immediately, and I kind of had to dig into it. In verse 9, or excuse me, in chapter 9, Jesus flat denies that illness and disease is necessarily the result of anybody's sin. So what's going on here? Right? Just four or five chapters later, he's going to deny any kind of connection. But here he makes an incredible connection between sin and his future, his healing. Here's something interesting. Throughout the writings of John, sin always, nearly always, refers to not believing in Jesus Christ as the one God sent. Right? And I say that with emphasis. God sent. Jesus didn't decide, I'm going to go down and fix up Dad's project. He was sent. Keep that in mind just, just for a little bit here. God sent Jesus to both reveal truth and to redeem creation. So stop sinning or something worse will happen to you. In fact, a bit later in our passage, John makes very clear that not only did Jesus, God send Jesus, but God also gave Jesus. Again, this is not a right, not a power, anything that Jesus had in and of himself. It was given to him by the Father because he was perfectly obedient. That's going to come up. Hang on there. God gave Jesus the right to both give life and then to judge that life. But Jesus is trying to tell the man, and he's trying to tell all of us, that if he makes the right choices now, he could avoid judgment later. Right? Jesus has been given the right to give life, but he's also been given the right to judge life. And Jesus is telling the man, I won't sit in judgment of you if you make the right choice now. You can avoid all of that if you make the right choice now. And accept me as your Savior. Now notice something. The Pharisees of their own accord, of their own will, of their own decision, being obedient only to themselves and their opinions, right, wanted only to judge the man's life, right? Two powers to give life and to judge life. They were concerned only with judging, condemning life. While Jesus, right, having been given that right by God, he did, God didn't give the Pharisees that right. He gave his son that right. Chose instead to exercise his right to give the man life rather than to condemn the man. Two choices, two powers God gives them. We're going to see that in just a little bit. The Pharisees chose to condemn, to judge, and Jesus chooses to save. Notice also, the man didn't seek and ask Jesus to be saved. He hasn't cleaned up his life. I, I don't, there's no indication. It's completely ambiguous if you read that passage. There is no indication. What we do is we read what happens afterwards because what, what happens after the guy finally gives the Pharisees Jesus' name is, well, Jesus has kind of sealed his plate. Now everybody knows who he is, and, 
And so we take that consequence and we think, well, this must be bad, but, it, but it's not. The passage is incredibly ambivalent. It, it could go either way. But here's the thing. Whenever John has somebody reporting something, and this is the word that's actually used again, it's always positive. In chapter 4, the Samaritan woman reports the good news of Jesus to the village. In chapter 16, the Holy Spirit will report important information to believers. It is entirely probable, regardless of the negative consequences of the man's actions, that the narrative concludes with the man being both physically and spiritually healed. Why? Because he reported truthfully what Jesus had done for him. He gave testimony. And is that not what John's gospel is, is all about? If you believe in my name and testify, bam, man, you're on the right road. He had finally believed in and proclaimed the name of Jesus. But, right, as we just mentioned, the man's action put Jesus in a whole lot of hot water. Verses 16 and 17. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, that's the first criticism. Keep in mind the criticisms here. The Jewish leaders began to persecute him. Now, in his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now, there's two things here. One, simply a matter of opinion. Right? The, the, the Jews, they, 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 they had a conservative party and they had a liberal party. It was Shemaliel, help me out here, say Shemaliel, and Hillel, conservative, liberal. And all, everybody kind of lined up with one of the two. And interesting note, Jesus usually lined up with the liberals. On one point, he lines up with the conservatives, and, and that's marriage. Weird, huh? Totally, I, I don't know why I'm telling you all that. It's not in my notes. I need to keep rolling here. Here we go. Now, here's the deal, okay? So the first one is a, it's a difference of opinion and interpretation, right? But the second thing makes matters even worse for Jesus. Now, the first thing, again, matter of interpretation. Some Jews thought that God kept the Sabbath with Israel. And just take a moment to understand what I'm saying there. One day a week, God does not help you. He does nothing, he takes a Sabbath break. Many Jews believe this, that he observes, observes the Sabbath, and he rests one day a week. No healing, no life-giving activity. But others, including Jesus, rightfully argued that although God rested from the work of creating on Sabbath, his life-giving work never rests. It never stops. For Jesus, the Sabbath was defined not by a lack of work, but by joining in God's life-giving work that never, ever ceases. And again, matter of opinion, but the second thing, the second thing seals his fate, right? Off of his head. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father, this is what freaked them out, right? Then he's working like he's always working. And I too am working. My father and I too. Now, it's not all that unusual for this culture at this time to call God my father, right? To the Jews, that, that, that title, father, um, it conveyed this idea of, of love and care, right, of nurturing. And to the Gentiles, a little bit different, right? The title father really denoted um, authority and power, right, something to fear. But to the Jews, the term father was something in, incredibly endearing, Right, a whole different picture of father.
Jesus was claiming an incredibly exclusive relationship with God, and the Jewish leaders, they recognized it, and they were correct. He was saying that I have an exclusive relationship with the Father. And again, nobody likes to be less than. So you know the Pharisees, they're not happy now. This guy, and the crowds are agreeing, this guy is more than us, right? He's, man, the way he speaks and the way he teaches, we're not, we're not the top dogs anymore. People are giving him honor, and they're dishonoring us. And in that culture, honor and shame, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, this got the Pharisees up in arms, right? So, again, two legit criticisms and one totally false criticism, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, which he was, but he's got a good reason, but he was also calling God his own father, which God was his own father. But then this, 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 this last line here, making himself equal with God, he was not doing this. And again, you're all just going to just, just hang in there, right? God, Jesus was not claiming equality with God, right? This is just incredibly inaccurate. Let me tell you why. Jesus didn't have to make himself equal with God. Right in John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3, we already know that God that Jesus is the co-creator of the world. We already we already know this. Right? Jesus didn't have to claim any divine status because God had already conferred divine status on him on his only and perfectly obedient son. So again, what the Pharisees were accusing him of, he is totally innocent. Jesus never claimed to be equal with God. Hang in there. We see a lot of passage. I'm going to come to this, right? And this is the, this is the, the power of the gospel of John, right? In, in, in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You have this like, but then in this passage, in this passage, right, I'm going to move on to the next passage. He, he responds to the one totally false criticism. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. And you're accusing me of trying to be equal with God. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. So again, the book of John and the other gospels and the rest of the New Testament all claim that Jesus is God. And yet in this passage, Jesus seems to be redefining what that biblical equality is all about. The Pharisees had one idea, but Jesus had a completely radically different idea of this word equality. The son's role is to see what the father is doing and then to do it. And the father's role is simply to love the son. And this love results in the father showing the son everything so that nothing remains hidden from the son. Now follow this argument here. In this way, the son perfectly reveals the father through his actions. He watches what the father does and then he physically does it exactly as he sees the father doing. No embellishments, right? If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? You're getting this now. The Son perfectly reveals the Father through his actions. The Son's one aim is to be obedient so that people can see in him the character and activity of God himself. And again, that requires perfect obedience. If we want people to see God, we, it's a tall order, we have to be obedient, because then through our actions, they see God.
in this passage, God clearly is calling the shots. I mean, you're seeing this, right? He's calling the shots, and Jesus is clearly the obedient, responsive one. And again, think about the charge. You're claiming to be equal with God. You say, no, no, I'm not. No, 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 I'm not at all. This kind of equality, right, has nothing to do with questions like which independent person has bigger muscles, right? Which one has more power, which one calls, you know, all those kind of things. It's an equality built on love and obedience. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the kind of equality that leads to this kind of trust. Listen to this, verses 21 and 22. For just as the Father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So the Father entrusted the Son with the divine right to act, right, to give life and then to judge that life, but only as God acts and only as God gives life and only as God judges. Jesus does not unilaterally make these decisions. He sees the Father, he hears the Father, and he, he, he just does what the Father does. And that, that's our call, right? We see what Jesus does, and then we go out and try to do the same things that Jesus does. And why did the Father entrust all of this to the Son? Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's the point of it all. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, here's the crazy part. The word honor, and, and there's some synonyms, um, glory and praise, but the, the, the specific word honor, it's only used three times in the book of John in three different verses. And the first one here emphasizes humans giving honor to the Father and the Son. But it's also used in John 8 when Jesus is accused of being demon-possessed. I'm not demon-possessed, he says, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he's the judge. That's God, the Father. Now, as you recall, the judge, the Father, has given the right to the Son, but only as the Son judges as the Father judges. And again, in, verse, excuse me, in chapter 12, John claims that the Father would honor anyone who serves Jesus. It says this, verse 26, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. And this is super, super important. Now, check this out. If you decided to honor God, acting like a servant will not bring you worldly honor. Just, just a spoiler alert, right? You will be shamed when you act like a servant. That's the way the world looks at honor as different from the way God looks at honor. It will bring you social shame, but God will honor you. Listen to this. The Son honors the Father. The people who serve Jesus honor both the Son and the Father, and the Father honors anyone who serves Jesus. I know I'm just going to leave that up there a second and let you guys, even as I wrote it, I thought, wow. And here's the final answer to all this crazy relational math. The Son is just like us in one respect. He honors the Father. But he's also unlike us in one respect, right, because he receives honor from people. So Jesus takes two words, common words, and he infuses them with deity. Right? Equality is finally achieved when we focus on honoring others rather than ourselves. And God honors this. And then when we read and obey his word, we're going to focus on the things that God has focused on exactly as Jesus did. We do the same thing. We watch and then we do. And when we obey, we're given power to do God's perfect and pleasing will, but only when we obey. 
And when that happens, verse 24 says this, very truly I tell you, whenever, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has already crossed over from death to life. This is the amazing part. Remember, God gave the son the right to both give life and to judge that life. And in verse 24, like I mentioned earlier, Jesus was trying to tell the sick man, right? If you want to believe, if you want to hold on to this new physical life and freedom that you have, you've got to make the right choices now. Then you can enjoy this new physical life of yours forever. Verse 25 says, very, very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come. I want you to notice that. Those are two different time frames. It's the future and it's now. Very truly I tell you, in the future... And now, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live, both now and in the future. You need to keep that in mind. In effect, those who hear and believe have already entered the presence of God. See, we've got this crazy idea that we only enter the presence of God when we die. But in fact, we enter his presence when we die to sin. Not a physical death. Right? They have eternal life, the life that is with God now and forever. They are no longer under death's control. Right? They belong to God. In fact, when we believe, he starts calling us his own children. This is in chapter 1. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. I'm closing as I prepare this message. One particular passage from Paul just kept coming to mind. And as redeemed and Charlie to come forward, we're going to close out with some special song. I'm going to read this this passage from the book of Philippians, chapter two, verses five through eleven. I, you know, you've all read this. I know you have. You, you know this. But again, as I as I dug into chapter five of John, this passage from Paul just it took on a life that I it never had before so based on everything that I've just shared with you hear again the words of Paul it says this starting chapter chapter 2 verse 5 in your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearances as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now catch this at the end there. To the glory of God the Father. Everything that Jesus does glorified his Father. Everything we do glorifies the Father and the Son. We glorify the Son. We're also glorifying the Father. You bow your heads. Father, thank you for your words here. Thank you for your Apostle John, um, the time that he had to think this stuff through. And Father, this morning, thank you for Charlie and Redeemed. As they close us out, um, speak to our hearts, Father, in a way that later today we'd be a little bit more like your son. Thank you, Father, in your son's name I pray.